Hello and welcome to Radical, Women and the Irish Revolution. I'm your host, Julie Morrissey, Poet-in-Residence at the National Library of Ireland. In this podcast series, I will be joined by a variety of guests to talk about my experience as I think and write about some of the most important women in Irish history. This podcast invites listeners to join my learning and creative processes at the National Library and gives a chance to follow my project as it unfolds. Welcome back to the final episode of my podcast as potent residents of the National Library of Ireland. Our listeners will know that in our previous three episodes, I have been joined by excellent writers and artists who have very generously discussed their practices in the context of ideas from my research in the Decade of Centenaries program. You can check out those episodes with Susan Cahill, Alice Rekab and Sean Hewitt on the National Library SoundCloud page and on my website. Today, for this final episode, I thought I would share some different voices, voices directly from the archive. These are the voices that have inspired my work over the past year as Poet in Residence. I'm very happy that my pamphlet, Radical Women and the Irish Revolution, will be available soon. I'm having so much fun working on that with designer Shauna Buckley, and we're making a beautiful publication that includes text, poems, photographs, and images from the archive. So do keep an eye on my website and the National Library social media for details of the pamphlet's release. I'm delighted that it will be stocked at the Library Project in Temple Bar, Dublin, a fantastic independent bookshop that you should visit if you haven't already. So the poems in the pamphlet are inspired by several women who became central to this project as I worked, namely Lily O'Brennan, Elizabeth O'Farrell, Julia Grennan and Dorothy McArdle, and many others. Susan Cahill and I spoke at length about McArdle in episode one, and I want to return to McArdle today. One of the events that captured my imagination throughout all of my work in the archive were the Easter Rising surrenders. I found myself continuously imagining what those moments would have been like. And I'm particularly taken with the bravery of the women who either had an active role in the surrenders, like Elizabeth O'Farrell, and all of the women who fought and surrendered alongside the men, like Lily O'Brennan and so many others. And because of the area I ended up moving to not so long before I began my work as poet in residence, that is Chant Fort in Dublin 8, I found myself surrounded by historic sites on a daily basis. I began to reimagine the women being marched to Kilmainham Jail, for example, once they surrendered. And in general, in Dublin 8, I'm surrounded by places that are significant for the rising. One activity I would highly recommend is the Richmond Barracks walking tour, which I went on last year. It was really fun and informative, and it gave me an appreciation for how much history is right there in my local area. Later in this episode, I will read poems inspired by my excursions around the city, and I'll also read my poem about Elizabeth O'Farrell's role in The Surrenders. But first, I think it's fascinating to hear the women in their own words. I want to share some materials from the archives at the National Library about Easter Week and the surrenders. McCardle wrote an excellent series in the Irish press about the seven days of Easter Week. So I'll start with some of those excerpts. And then I want to read Lily O'Brennan's account of the surrenders and a short excerpt from Elizabeth O'Farrell's account. I hope hearing the words of these radical women will show where my inspiration comes from in this project. So beginning with McArdle and her wonderful account of Easter Week that was published in the Irish press, and now I'm going to read McArdle's words. 
That Monday morning, how well we know the picture now, even those of us who were more than a hundred miles away at the time. The city lay all bathed in golden sunshine with a clear blue dome overhead and a soft freshness in the air of late spring or early summer that called the liabeds to enjoy the holiday. There were some, though, that got up very early that morning, just as the dawn brightened the greying night sky. Breakfasts were ready for them even at that hour, and sometimes a wife or a mother to tie on the bandolier that slipped round the ununiformed shoulder. For it was the greyish-green cloth of the Irish volunteers that these few had chosen for their holiday attire. Inside Liberty Hall, there were others who, too, stirred early and pulled on their dark-hued uniforms as they looked out on the milky cupola of the Custom House. It was going to be a fine day, and a day for beginning this great adventure. While uniform figures in twos or threes slipped along to the meeting place, the city slowly awoke to the day of pleasure. People tumbled out onto the streets in hundreds to hurry away, away to strands and the sea, to the heathery mountains, to the open clearness of the country, to the races. A clear sky, a brilliant sun, and the whole day to enjoy them in. Wasn't it great to be alive? Seven men sat tense around a table in Liberty Hall at nine o'clock. So McArdle's account is beautiful and poetic and lengthy. I mean, she covers the seven days of the rising. So I'm skipping around here um, between excerpts from each day, beginning on the Monday. The downpour. This was a very different day from the one preceding. There was no sun, the air was sultry and heavy, and the sky was a mass of thick leaden clouds that threatened rain at any moment. After midday, the downpour came, that steady, hopeless kind of rain which everyone in Ireland knows and it lasted all the afternoon and evening. It fell on the still, helpless bodies of the poor men lying in the green, soaking them completely so that they lay there sodden and stiff for all to see. Even so early as half past seven in the morning, there were little knots of people gathered in O'Connell Street, staring at the post office as if they could see through its stone walls into the minds of the leaders inside. A number of men crossed the road from the Republican headquarters and began to press the curious ones back. There was a dangerous military operation to be carried out, they told them. They must get well back, up behind the Parnell Monument or away down Talbot Street. From the distance, the crowd watched a few figures busy round the base of Nelson's Pillar, though what they were doing no one could make out. Suddenly they straightened themselves, turned and went back. A few instants later, there was a mighty detonation followed by a cloud of smoke and dust which rose round the massive column. So that was it, they were trying to blow up the pillar, while more power to them. A second and third time, the attempt was made without, however, making Nelson budge. The difficulty, of course, was in felling the column so that it would not fall on the surrounding buildings. Exchanging rumours. In the quieter sunlit streets, the people of Dublin wandered around aimlessly, peeping around corners that gave a view of the fighting, chatting non-committally with strangers and exchanging rumours. There was a strong feeling of hostility to the Republicans amongst most of them. 
They always seem willing to help the British and even to rescue them at times, but for their own, they had nothing but condemnation. Nevertheless, on this third day, a vague sort of pride in the Republicans showed itself here and there. There was surprise that they should have held out for so long, and a tacit admission that, after all, there was something in these men, some power of organisation, some spiritual strength that helped them to persevere. The feeling was, for many, the beginning of the insurgents. This was the beginning of the great fire which destroyed the heart of Dublin. It was caused not by looters, as had been the fires earlier in the week, but by the incendiary bombs used by the British to clear the way for a frontal attack on the GPO. There was a barricade of furniture across Abbey Street, and the flames burst eagerly across this and attacked Wynne's Hotel on the other side. The fire then started to spread slowly down either side of the street, up and down, and finally burst out on O'Connell Street. People in all parts of the city could see the great pall of smoke which arose from the burning buildings and hung over all this area. And this, together with the scraps of charred paper that the wind carried far and wide, told their own tale. The solid outer walls of the GPO were standing up well to the direct bombardment which was playing on them now. But the roof was already terribly damaged and the upper rooms were too dangerous to occupy. Clark came to the prisoners they held and told them they would have to go to the cellars. It's the only place of safety we can find for you, he said. Don't blame us. We are making our last stand. It was the last stand, indeed. The snipers had by now been all called in. Those that remained for the block between them and Middle Abbey Street was burning by this time. Of the 40 members of Come and Man who had been with them in the beginning, only three remained. All the others, having with wise forethought, been sent away on different pretexts by Pierce. All these women played a great part. Let us not forget, wrote Connolly, on his bed of pain. Gangrene had now shown itself in his foot. The splendid women who have everywhere stood by us. At about eight o'clock, an incendiary shell burst on the roof. And in a very short time, the whole top of the building was ablaze. The leaders looked at one another. The Surrender Early on the Saturday morning, the Republicans in the houses along Moore Street knew exactly how they were placed. There was no hope at all of breaking through to the four courts. It would just be a case of waiting while the British dragged up their big guns and began the GPO plan all over again. More houses would be destroyed and burnt, more soldiers and many civilians killed, and then nothing but death or surrender amid falling walls and smoke and flame. About midday, a council of war was held in the back room of number 16. Present was Pierce, Clark, Plunkett, McDermida, and lying on a couch, Connolly. The first the others knew of the result of their deliberations was when Sean McDermott came out and quietly asked one of the common man girls if she had anything white out of which they could make a flag. All that heard him knew what this meant. It was the end. They made a rough flag out of a piece of white cotton and hung it out of the window as he directed. 
The same girl, Elizabeth O'Farrell, was called into Pierce and he gave her a message that the Commandant General of the Irish Republican Army wished to treat with the Commandant General of the British forces in Ireland. The fire stops. Then this brave girl holding the white flag over her stepped out into bullet-swept Moore Street and walked up unfalteringly towards the barricade at the Parnell Street end. Inside, her two companions watched her breathlessly with lumps in their throats, afraid that every minute they would see the gallant little figure totter and fall. But as she advanced, the fire slackened and finally stopped. She crossed the barricade and gave her message to the officer in charge, a Colonel Portal, a man of very domineering type who, after a suspicious cross-examination, sent her up the street to Tom Clark's shop. In this house, Brigadier General Lowe had his headquarters. The officer behaved as he did all through his subsequent dealings with the leaders, with quiet politeness, not untinged with the recognition of the worth of his opponents. His answer to Pierce's message was, however, curt and decisive. He would not treat at all. He wanted an unconditional surrender. He gave her a note for Pierce as well. Something, however, in this note seems to have caused some doubt in the minds of the leaders, and for the second time, Elizabeth O'Farrell was sent up to Low. He read Pierce's message, then turned to her and said, Go back and tell Mr. Pierce that I will not treat at all unless he surrenders unconditionally and that Mr. Connolly follows on a stretcher. So that was McArdle's account of the surrenders and Easter week in its entirety as published in the Irish press. And I'm only reading small excerpts because the accounts are um, lengthy and well worth reading in their entirety and are accessible in the National Library of Ireland for people who are interested. I want to move on to Lily O'Brennan's accounts. She became another central figure to this project and to my poems. And she has two accounts of Easter week that I'd like to read from. The first is from the Irish press. Easter week experiences. Broadcasting last night from Radio Erin, Miss Lily O'Brennan, sister of Mrs. Eamon Kent, told the story of Easter week as she, a member of Come and a Man, lived through it. On Monday morning, with my kit on my back, I cycled to the hall in Cork Street and took my place with the women. We took our place behind the section of volunteers under Captain Seamus Murphy. Hardly had we gone some yards down Marrowbone Lane when our section halted. It surprised me to see the column of volunteers ahead and in the rear marching off without us. The next thing I remember is the captain's firm knock on the gates of the distillery and his demand, open in the name of the Irish Republic. Then volleys of shots rang out. The rising of 1916 had begun. Only the men and women inside the barricades can testify to the thrill of those first shots. We were fighting to free Ireland. On Sunday, about noon, a rousing letter came from Commandant Eamon Kant from the South Dublin Union. Therefore, when a few hours later, about three o'clock, the news of the surrender reached us, with the order from the Commandant that the men there were to fall in behind those coming from the South Dublin Union, there was incredible dismay. The women had been told they could go home, but their reply was, we came out with you, 
we will surrender with you. As 4th Battalion marched off, we were told to get in behind them. At our rear, Commandant Thomas McDonough marched at the head of his battalion. Suddenly, the women raised a song, and defiantly singing, we went on our way. Looking back now on that tragic week in Kilmainham Jail, I cannot but recall a few who are now no more. Mrs Barrett, sister of Sean Connolly, who was killed in the City Hall. Marcella Cosgrove, the fine Irish woman who was in the movement from its very early stages. Ginny Shanahan of the Irish Citizen Army. And the noble-hearted Countess Markievicz, who was with us at the time on Kilmainham, awaiting her court-martial. We were wakened at the dawning of the day by volleys of rifle fire. The executions had begun. And so some of the things that Lily talks about there, I've talked about um, on this podcast before. Myself and Alice Rekab had a conversation about the role of song in our episode, and you can go back and, and listen to that. And we also talked about um, Ginny Shanahan um, in the context of um, the raising of the flag at Liberty Hall to commemorate the death of James Connolly. And I'd like to read just a, another excerpt from Lily O'Brennan. So this is another account um, of the Rising that was published in the Evening Herald, republished in the Evening Herald, in fact, in 2006. And the notes for this will be um, in the show notes. And again, this is a kind of a longer piece, so um, I'm just going to read the last part. We were nearing the South Dublin Union when the British officer taking over the surrender addressed Commandant Chant and said, Now, will you get all your men together? They are here, he replied. The officer looked at the men lined up before Commandant Chant and said, You don't mean that you held all those buildings with 40 men. The commandant quietly interposed, 42. We were descending Mount Brown Hill and were coming into Old Kamenum. Across the road on our left were soldiers on guard. On our right loomed the grim, grey, forbidding walls of Kamenum Jail. As we entered the barracks, a sergeant stepped forward and ordered us to stand aside, and we saw Commandant Tomas McDonough pass with the 3rd Battalion. Soon the volunteers were out of sight and all was silent and dark around us. Someone called for water and the sergeant brought us a bucketful. We all had a drink for our throats were dry. Then coming towards us from the far end of the barracks, we heard marching men. As they approached and quickly passed us in silence, we recognised in the dim dusk our own volunteers. They were going to the cattle boats at the north wall for deportation. The sergeant came over to us. I'll take you girls to the married quarters for the night, he said. They are the most comfortable. Follow me. Across the barrack square, we followed him in the darkness. The strain was over. We were tired and possibly hungry. We had had nothing to eat since 6am that day. There was need now to keep our heads erect. They hung as our hearts dropped. So ended Sunday, April 30th, 1916. So that was Lily O'Brennan on the surrenders. There's also a fascinating account by Elizabeth O'Farrell of the surrenders, and she had such a central role that I want to read a little bit from that account. Though again, um, the full thing is quite long, so I'm just going to read a short excerpt here, all available to read in full at the National Library. This is the voice of Elizabeth O'Farrell. 
I then got orders from Sean McDermott to provide a white flag. He first hung one out of the house to ensure me from being fired on. I left by the house, Gorman's, 15 Moore Street, about 12.45pm on Saturday the 29th with a verbal message from the commandant of the Irish Republican Army to the commandant of the British forces in Ireland to the effect that he wished to treat with them. I waved a small white flag which I carried and the military ceased firing and called me up to the barrier across the top of Moore Street into Parnell Street. As I passed up Moore Street, I saw at the corner of Sackville Lane the O'Rahilly's hat and revolver lying on the ground. I thought he had gone into some house. I told my message to the officer in charge there and he asked me how many girls were down there. I said three. He said, take my advice and go down again and bring the other two girls out of it. He was about putting me back again through the barrier when he changed his mind and said, however, you had better wait. I suppose this will have to be reported. Then he sent another officer with me up Parnell Street towards the Parnell statue. He sent into one of the houses there. I think it was 70 or 71 Parnell Street for someone in command. The officer in command then came out. His name I've learned since is Colonel Portal. And skipping a little bit ahead here. Colonel Portal. Will Pierce be able to be moved on a stretcher? I. Pierce doesn't need a stretcher. Colonel Portal. Pierce doesn't need a stretcher, madam. I. Pierce doesn't need a stretcher. Colonel Portal. You think because you are a woman, you can say what you like. Mind you don't get a shot through that little head of yours. So those are the words of Elizabeth O'Farrell, and you can read the entire account at the National Library. There's so much material in the archive, aside from these wonderful accounts by McArdle, O'Brennan and O'Farrell. And all the materials are accessible in the reading rooms of the National Library. I want to close out this episode and this entire series by sharing two poems from my forthcoming pamphlet. I'm really excited to share this work I've had the chance to read some of the poems at festivals and events, but it's great to have this forum of the podcast to make the audio accessible to listeners. Thank you all for listening and for joining me on this journey. This is the first time I've made a podcast and I really enjoy doing it. I want to thank all of the people who joined me as guests also and everyone that was involved in making the podcast. There'll be more poems coming soon in the pamphlet, so do keep an eye on my website, juliemorrissey.com and the National Library social media for updates on that. For now, I'll leave you with these two poems, one about Lily O'Brennan and one about Elizabeth O'Farrell. Slán, August Gennairi Live. This first poem is based on Lily O'Brennan's accounts of the surrender, as I just read excerpts from. So throughout the pamphlet, the poems are footnoted and use italics to indicate where the sources are for the poems. So this poem, there are italicized words and phrases that are taken from two accounts of the Easter Rising surrenders written by Lily O'Brennan, which you just heard. One account, Easter Week Experiences, was published in April 1939 in the Irish press. The other, Easter 1916, The Surrender, was originally published in On Cuss and Tour in June 1947 and republished in the Evening Herald in April 2006. I found both articles at the Irish newspaper archive database. On Cusson Tour. A rhythm of scrolling and noting, 
dates and times, numbers and names, reading and squinting at photographs, breezing through adverts, sweet afton, sunlight soap, always, always fixated on the steps. I rerun the day in my head. Pedaled up the crook of the hill at Mount Brown, freewheeled through Chantfort, on up to the library where I sit at a desk and trawl old newspapers. Lily O'Brennan on the surrender. I am obsessed with the surrenders. They descend the hill at Mount Brown, surrounded by soldiers on guard, led by Thomas McDonough, defiant like O'Farrell, who jostled with General Lowe. Back cheek, you might call it. When the officer demands the rest of McDonough's men, incredulous that they held all those buildings with 40 men, McDonough hits back, 42. It is the steps that stay in my head when Lily sees the grim, grey, forbidding walls of Kilmainham Jail where later tonight I will sit at the Patriots with a pint while the city slips from under us at the flick of planning whims. I walk around these streets, floored, kneel and kiss every stone on Mount Brown, brush my hands along the 100-year-old metal fences, hug the stones on the Kamak River, Lily's footsteps crunch in the night, the words of the women insistent. We came out with you. We will surrender with you. The evenings are shorter now. I lean to the window, listening for Lily's steps on the hill. This poem's title is taken from Elizabeth O'Farrell's account of the 1916 Easter Rising Surrenders, in which she played a significant role at sites all over Dublin. Again, the italicised language, which you'll see in the pamphlet, are direct quotations from O'Farrell's account. The photograph of the surrender printed in the Daily Sketch newspaper erased O'Farrell, instead depicting Pierce standing alone on Moore Street. The original photograph, which includes O'Farrell, is held in the Irish Political Figures Photographic Collection at the National Library of Ireland. And it's quite a famous photograph, so I'm sure many listeners will be familiar with it. I'm also delighted that Kieranier has translated this poem for the pamphlet, so it will appear in both English and Irish. Stooped, tripped and fell. Elizabeth's footsteps stay with me in the night when I can't sleep and I rerun the day in my head. Thoughts of her footsteps as I lie in Chant Fort her feet moving up Moore Street, one step after another, eyes fixed ahead. An unknown journey to the barricade, a white cotton flag fashioned at the request of Sean McDermott before he asked her to walk up Moore Street to the British Army alone and surrender on their behalf. Earlier, when she escaped, ran from the GPO, Nurse O'Farrell fell, stumbled to the ground. Guns blared and shots rang all around her. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that fall? Can you imagine her walk up Moore Street, 
Pierce, Connolly, McDermott, invisible, inside, the army ahead, and an improvised white flag. A step, another step, and another. Can you imagine? In my worst times, I have felt weak at the knees. On Duke Street, grief and loss, I thought my shins would collapse into concrete. O'Farrell, matter of fact, delivers the message, the surrender. Informs the army that Pierce doesn't need a stretcher. Words met with disdain. You think because you're a woman, you can say what you want. What Ireland were they living in? She holds her ground, unperturbed, and when she returns from her task one minute late, one minute, somehow she gets the British generals to set their watches to hers. At times she is blindfolded on her mission to spread the word. On Westland Row, she sets off to find De Valera on foot, no escort, step by step, through the firing line of Butt Bridge, startled when a man half a yard behind her collapses, shot. Elizabeth keeps walking. All over the city, to all manner of men, she is robbed by the British, stripped and searched, thrown in a cell with Maloney and French Mullen lined up with prisoners, marched to Richmond Barracks by an armed guard. Step after step after step. Can you imagine? And somehow, in the end, she frees herself with explanations, retrieves the stolen money, and demands an apology from Brigadier General Lowe, who protests the questioning of his honour. It is up to you to uphold it, she says. Can you imagine her speaking those words, turning on her heel, the reclaimed coins jingling in her pocket as she strides away? Only to have those very legs removed from evidence, her image erased, the emissary who fabricated the white flag, the only person brave enough to walk up Moore Street alone, caused to vanish into the thin air of history. This episode of Radical Women and the Irish Revolution is created as part of the Poet in Residence program at the National Library of Ireland. Supported by the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Geltok, Sport and Media, under the Decade of Centenaries program, 2012 to 2023. Sound and production are by the Museum of Literature Ireland. The music is by Feda. Feda.